welcome to the City Grace Summer Breakout Sessions. This is Session 5, Embracing Repentance and Faith. So today we are entering into session number five. You guys ready for this? All right, so just to recap, um, last week I explained how the gospel is not just the way in to the life of discipleship and the life of the Christian faith, but the gospel is also the way up. So historically, a lot of times churches think of you know preaching the gospel as a way to get people to become Christians, but then once you become a Christian or become a disciple, then you move on to other more advanced Christian practices like prayer and going to church and community groups and stuff like that. But the reality is we never outgrow our need for the gospel. The gospel is something that we need continuously. And without the gospel, we suffer, we don't grow, we stall out. So the gospel is not only the way in, but it's also the way up. Um, You remember last week I shared the story about the woman who was at the... Uh, the feet of Jesus at a at a dinner party, and she was weeping and weeping for Jesus, and um, her great love was just over overflowing in this beautiful act of kindness, where she you know she breaks the perfume on his feet. And um, do you remember what Jesus said about said about her? Yeah, he who has been forgiven much loves much, and we saw that. We saw that the love that she had was overflowing in her life because of an awareness of not only how great her sin was, but how forgiven she was. And so we talked about last week how as a person is growing in their walk, as they're growing and following Jesus, the cross becomes bigger for them. And the idea of a bigger cross is that their sort of dual awareness, their awareness on the one hand of God's holiness and his righteousness and majesty and his love grows and grows and grows, but also an awareness of how, um, how sinful uh, their sin is grows as well. And as the, as the person appreciates the depth of their sin, they also appreciate even more the fact that God would die for a person like them. So the cross grows, and, and you as a person who is sort of realizing these, these things grows in your love for God, your appreciation for what he's done, and your thankfulness. And that really, friends, is the fuel behind the walk of faith. If you ever lose sight of that, do you know what happens to, to your life of following Jesus? It gets derailed, it dies. It becomes joyless. The joy is gone. Then it becomes legalism. It becomes performance. It becomes, I'm doing things in order to try to earn God's favor. Um, and so we saw last week that there's two ways that um, a person can sort of be stifled in their life of following Jesus in their life of discipleship. And that's through, on the one hand, performing, and on the other hand, pretending. And when we perform, when we pretend, we're, we're basically, the cross stays small. And we don't grow in our love for God and our appreciation for what he's done. And performing is this mindset that, well, God has these standards out there or these rules. And if we can follow those rules as best as we can, then we can somehow earn God's favor or blessing through our good behavior. 
and a lot of the a lot of burnout in Christian circles results from this very thing of people feeling like they have to do and work and try so hard in order to meet some standard of God's holiness. But the reality is that our best efforts to to try to be good never really can possibly reach the the majesty and the holiness of God. So so that ends up being an, an exhausting, fruitless effort. But we also talked last uh, last week about our tendency to pretend, and we minimize sin. And I actually had a really good question this week about what I mean when I when I say minimizing sin. Does that mean we're sinning less? Well, hopefully it does mean that you're you're growing, you're sinning less. But when we when we minimize, we talk about minimizing sin. We're really what we're talking about is minimizing the appearance of sinfulness. So it's pretending that we're not actually as sinful as we are, or pretending that our sin isn't that bad. And we have very fancy uh, and, uh, you know, complex ways, sophisticated ways of pretending that we're actually not as bad as we are. And so we talked last week about righteousness and how we, you know, have this tendency to look for righteousness in things. And I I mentioned to you that I struggle with the cool pastor righteousness. (laughs) You know, I have, you know, back in the day, you know, I was like this new pastor in New York City, and I go back and like hang out with all my other pastor friends like in New Jersey and other places, and I thought it was so cool because like I was from the big city and everything like that. And, uh, you know, people find their righteousness in a variety of, in a variety of things, right? Some, some people mention they have like neighborhood righteousness, um, like I'm from the East Village or I'm from West Village or, yeah, I'm not from New Jersey. Or maybe you're proud of the fact that you're from New Jersey. Or maybe you have righteousness in how um, how you know non-judgmental you are. Maybe you have righteousness in how well you know your theology. Or maybe you have righteousness because of your ethnicity. Or maybe you have righteousness because of the school that you went to. Any other ideas about where people get the righteousness from? Health righteousness. I shared, Lucas, I shared last week about biking righteousness. Career righteousness, sure. Yeah. Yeah, we're always sort of sizing each other up, right? By that question, what do you do? Sort of gauge each other. So anyway, these sport these these places we go to for righteousness, really what that is is pretending. It, it's it's looking for righteousness in things in order that we can avoid the uncomfortable reality of the sin in our lives. And I want to take this uh, a step further today, and we're going to be looking at the story uh, for a while here of the rich young ruler. So if you have your Bibles, you could turn to Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 22. So Matthew 19, 16 through 22. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So let me ask you guys a question. Um, What is this man's view of God? The young man that comes to Jesus. What's his view of God? His God is money? Okay. But I mean God, God. I don't mean what is his God. I mean what's his view of God? Uh, Daniel. A system? Can you say a little bit more about that? A system by which he eats it, he does, he does great deeds, he makes it righteousness. Okay. A system by which he can attain righteousness by doing good things. Okay. Anybody else have anything to add to that? He has a low view of God. Thank you, Dana Baker. He thinks that he can earn his way into God's favor. Right, right. He has an inaccurate, false view of God. So, that's exactly correct. The man has an, ex- an extremely low view of God. He thinks God's standards are within reach. So he's basically taken a holy, righteous God with perfect standards, a majestic God, and sort of brought him down to the level where through his own effort he can achieve uh, salvation you know, by following the rules, essentially. So he's brought God down by suggesting and implying that through what he can do, that he could somehow earn God's salvation or God's favor or God's blessing. So he's taking God down. What's his view of himself? He has a high view of himself. Can you say a little bit more? He thinks that he's perfect. Okay. Well, he he knows something's missing, right? But he comes to Jesus. What what should I do in order to inherit eternal life? What what, I, what can I do? And Lucas said he has a high view of himself. Tell tell me more about this high view of himself. So he has an an inflated self perception. He thinks that within his own power and his own ability, he can live up to God's standards. And so that's why he comes to Jesus, basically, give me a list of the things that I need to do in order to earn God's favor. So he's dragged God down, and he's elevated himself incredibly. And so Jesus, in his response to this guy, hits him where it hurts. He picks that one part of this man's life that he's holding on to, his his ego is tied to this. He, he chooses the area of the man's finances and with one fell swoop, uh, fell swoop destroys his arrogance. He train wrecks. He train wrecks this guy's self-salvation project and shows him in an instant that his view is impossible to execute. Now, let me ask you, is Jesus trying to be mean and exclusive? Yeah, he's not, right? And I would say the opposite, that Jesus' response to the man, telling him that what he should do is sell everything he has, give it to the poor, and then go and follow him, that that's actually an an extremely loving thing for Jesus to do. And the interesting thing is that um, we read the um, Matthew version of that, but in the Mark version of that story, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him and then said those things to him. So we have to understand that when Jesus says to him, you need, what you need to do is sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me, that's actually an act of love. How is that a loving thing for Jesus to say to him? He's giving him another chance? Okay. He's offering him freedom from the thing that is his burden. 
He's offering freedom. Because he doesn't realize his wealth is a burden. Okay? So here's the interesting truth. Maybe it's a radical truth even. That there is nothing that Jesus could do that for this particular man that would be more loving than to demolish his sort of false sense of personal value and to put the kibosh on his self-salvation project. This idea that if he can only be good enough, if he can only try hard enough, if he can only know what the rules are, then he can somehow get to God on his own steam. Uh, Jesus has very, very graciously uh, killed that idea for him. And this is actually doing him an incredible, incredible favor because now the man can be released from those things, from performing and from pretending. He can be released from thinking that he can ever, ever through his own efforts and through trying super hard and making lots of commitments, achieve God's righteousness. He's sort of like stopping him while he's ahead in a way. He's, he's doing him a huge favor. But he's also rescuing the man from a life of pretending that on his own steam he, he's able to achieve righteousness. It, it's just not possible. And so he's giving this man freedom essentially to, to sort of let it all out in the open and to realize that he simply is not as righteous as he, as he thinks he is. What Jesus is offering him is a chance to rest in the knowledge that it is only through God's love and through God's action that he's able to have salvation or that he's able to have eternal life, that he's able to finally sort of receive the very thing that he wants. And so I want to say that it is through knowing our sinfulness, it is through being convicted of our sin, um, that we're actually able to find rest. Rest from ourselves, rest from our striving, rest from our pretending, rest from keeping up appearances. Um, no matter how hard we try, we oftentimes um, never really feel like we're good enough. Um, I'll, I'll admit to you that for me, um, being successful as a pastor, being successful as a church planner is, a, is something that I, I desperately want. It's a, it's a source of righteousness for me, and, and when I give a talk, I'm, I'm always you know, wanting to do the best that I can. But no matter how hard I try, I never feel quite good enough about how it goes. I usually spend Sunday evenings and sometimes parts of Monday just kind of like recovering from <laughs> Sunday. And sometimes Christy and I, I'll hop into the car, we'll, we'll go home, and so always the first thing I, I ask Christy, hey, Christy, how did I do today? It's like I need that affirmation because I have that sense of insecurity that it's never quite enough. And being told I'm a sinner and that I, that I you know, am deeply, not, not just a sinner, but that I'm deeply sinful, but that I don't have to pretend, um, you know, that I don't have to perform in order to earn God's favor, that he loves me just the way I am, that I'm still his son, that I still have his acceptance, not because of my own efforts, but because of what God has done for me through Christ. That is a huge, huge relief. And it means that I can stop, in a sense, trying so hard. But what ends up happening is it's not that you try less hard, but you, you keep doing what you do, but perhaps with less anxiety, and less question about more shalom, less question about whether or not I have value. And it also, and this is perhaps, you know, well, this is the corollary. 
but it frees us from a life of faking it. It frees us from a life of keeping up appearances and trying so hard to guard our reputation and to make sure people think about us a certain way. Um, Understanding our own sinfulness allows us to give up the charade and to be transparent with each other, to be honest with each other about our struggles. Um, That conviction of sin, the knowledge of sinfulness, and at the same time, God's love and acceptance of us allows us to be open about the things that we struggle with. And it's, it's so important. It's so critical. I can think of numerous um, situations where people were really, really hurting. Relationships falling apart, struggling with work, struggling with addiction issues, and burying it, not telling anybody going home and it leading to whatever destructive behaviors, in some cases broken relationships, broken beyond repair, because of an inability to share with other people the things that they were struggling with. And the thing is, without vulnerability, without an ability to be honest with each other about our struggles, there's, there's no possibility of relationships. There's no possibility of community. If we're faking it, and if we can't be honest about the things that are wrong with us, then we can't really love each other and we can't really accept each other because the, the people that we're accepting are actually not, they're not who you think they are. It's a, it's a charade, it's an image, but it's not the real thing. And so the ironic truth is that the knowledge, what Jesus does here, um, radically shattering the man's self-image, his self-confidence, his low view of God is actually the, the kindest, most loving Thing that he could do because it frees him. It sets him free to be able to be who he is, to be able to accept himself as he is, and to be able to, um, to give up on this sort of eternal, perpetual struggle of trying to be good enough for God. And when you understand this, when you realize it, it changes you, it changes the community, and it makes the community drastically different from the rest of the folks in our culture. So the jig is up. You're a sinner. And that's the best news that I that I could possibly tell you. It's actually good news. You're a sinner. It means you can let go of those things. Now, unfortunately, in the story that we just read, the man hears this from Jesus and he walks away. So he's not able to deal with this. And this is the sad part of the story is that at the end of the day, His money is what defines him. And he's incapable of letting God into that part of his life, the money part of his life. And for him to give up that money would be, in a sense, too sacrificial for him. It It would be him having to give up himself because he is defined by his money. Uh, for him to give it up and sell it and follow Jesus would be to give up himself. And so he can't do it. And so in the end, what this, what this sort of brings us around to is the topic of trust. Um, at, at the core of discipleship is learning to trust Jesus as the source of life, as the one who truly answers our deepest needs for righteousness and acceptance and belonging and stuff like that. Uh, one of the things that I said early on in the very first session that was that discipleship is a lifelong process of learning. And one of the things that we're learning about in the process of discipleship is trust. 
So we're going to talk about um, repentance and faith as as the way that we um, embrace and uh, live into the life of the kingdom. Uh, Okay, so you remember at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry uh, that he became proclaiming the he came proclaiming the good news. So from Mark chapter one fourteen through fifteen, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So we see here that the good news is that the kingdom of God is available. And according to Jesus, the way that we enter into the life of the kingdom is through this sort of dual um, action of repenting and believing the good news. And so repentance and belief then are a, are a kind of a lifelong process, or maybe, it, you know, as I said before, the gospel is not just the way in, but it's the way up. And repentance and belief then are not just something that you do on the front end to become a Christian, but the life of a disciple is meant to be an ongoing process of repenting and believing, something that happens every day, every week, every month. It's the way that we grow as disciples of Jesus. And repenting and believing are fundamentally about learning to take our trust out of the wrong things and to put our trust in the right things. Now, this idea, first of all, of repentance, I think tends to uh, have a negative connotation in our culture. Maybe some of you have seen, you know, the angry street preacher in Union Square or other, other places. And that word repent, at least, you know, I grew up in the church and, you know, I can even say that word repent just sort of has a negative connotation for me. I don't know if some of you share that. Just show of hands that like repentance has kind of a negative connotation for you. Some of you can kind of relate to that. And I think probably because it always comes with that threat, <laughs> turn or burn. So it does. It never comes across very loving. It always comes across very angry and very judgmental. And, uh, you know, some maybe you have pictures in your mind of like the thundering preacher at the front, like just screaming, repent, repent, um, really in a frightening, you know, threatening kind of way. So we tend to have um, this negative picture of repentance. Sometimes we think of repentance as making yourself feel really bad about something. So if you've done something wrong, then to repent means you just sort of soak in shame and sh- soak in guilt and until like you, you don't want to do it anymore. So it tends to have a very um, negative connotation. I want to introduce you today to this concept of joyful repentance. And to show you how repentance and faith are n- nothing like that, that they're actually a lot different than, than what we tend to think of. Uh, that word repent, sorry, I wish I could turn that off because I find it to be so upsetting, but I don't know how to turn it off. Um, the word repent in the Greek is the word metanoia, metanoia. So we, in our English, we get the word like metamorphosis, you know, a similar word. It's basically two words, metanoia, meta is to change and noia is, is to think or, or the mind. So when, the, when in the Greek it talks about metanoia, repentance, it's talking about a change of mind or a change of perspective or a change of attitude. Um, in the Hebrew, the word that's typically used is the word shuv. And shuv means to turn. So the idea with repentance is a change of mind or a change of attitude. Attitude In the Hebrew sense of shuv, you're headed in one direction, but when God says to shuv or to repent, it represents a, a change of direction. So you were heading in the one direction, but you take a drastic turnaround and head in the other direction. So it implies both a, a leaving one thing and then a turning towards something else. Um, some of you, maybe you've gone hiking. Now imagine that 
um, you're hiking like in New Jersey or upstate or something, and uh, you're following the, the dots on the trees because they paint the trees to mark the trail. And imagine you're going up and you're hiking and uh, the, uh, the dots become faded. And you're kind of like, oh, I think I see a, a dot over there. So you keep kind of going. And then pretty soon, like, you can't see any dots at all. And the, the trail is, like, getting really kind of frightening. And uh, you don't know where the trail is. And you don't recognize the path anymore. And so you're like, uh, I think we lost the path. So uh, we should turn around. And then you kind of go back until you can find the dots again. And then you get back on track onto the way that you're supposed to be going. That's repentance. Okay. You got off on the wrong tracks, you turn around and backtrack in order to get back on the right path. That's what repentance is. And so repentance then is turning from something. What are we turning away from when we repent? In one word. Sin. Yes, we're repenting from sin. So what is sin? What is sin? Come on, followers of Jesus, you got to know what sin is if you're going to be turning from it. Falling short of the glory of God sounds like uh, the uh, anything against the will of God. Okay, yeah, that's a that's a great definition of sin. Lots of great definitions of sin. Got some budding uh, theologians on our hands here. Oh, okay, great. Anything that separates you from sin or from uh, from God or others. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Well, we're gonna um, we're gonna take a look at the first sin in the Bible, Genesis chapter three. If you have your Bibles, look at Genesis chapter three, and we're gonna look at sin. In, uh, in two senses of the word. And this is called the fall. This is the part of the Bible where the human beings first sin and they first fall short of the glory of God. And we're going to learn about two aspects of sin. And these aspects are helpful because if we think about repentance as, as a fundamental turn or a change of mind, then that means that there's also two senses of, of what it means to repent or to turn from sin. All right, you guys there? You ready? All right. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will not die. Or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So this is the, um, the first case that we have of sin. And I want to suggest to you that there's two levels of sin. And the first level of sin that we see in this passage is a, a simple disobedience to God's commands. So that's one way to think about sin is God says don't do something and you do it. Or he says do something and you don't do it. It's, it's a sort of a simple matter, a, a simple sort of practical matter of doing the wrong things, of breaking the rules or breaking the laws. And so the Bible, of course, has what's known as the Ten Commandments that are in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, and that's um, ten of God's commandments. And so one of the very sort of simple ways to think about sin is as simply breaking one of the commandments. Um, the Bible says, do not murder. It says, do not commit adultery. 
Um, it says, you know, don't be lazy. The Bible says don't cheat. It says don't lie. The Bible says honor your father and your mother. So these are all sort of principles or rules. So one way to think about sin is, is as breaking, breaking the rules, I, I guess you could say. That's the first level. So you know that there's going to be a second level, right? So let me ask you before we go on, um, does God still care about level one sin? Or should we not worry about that first level of sin because we know that Jesus has died on the cross for us and he has covered over all of our sins? We should still care about level one sin? You know there's a level two coming, right? Um, Yes, we should very much care about level one sin. This is what Jesus said. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So sometimes people think, oh, well, Jesus came. He kind of like, you know, we don't, we're not under the law anymore. Those, those sins don't matter as much because, you know, now we live under grace and stuff like that. But if you actually read the Bible, then you see that in, Jesus, did, he never made the law easier. In fact, he made the law a lot harder. Um, Jesus never came to abolish the law. He never came to say that the rules didn't matter. Um, and we can look to um, what we call least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the, of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So clearly God still cares about level one sin. And part of discipleship, part of repentance then, is turning away from those things towards God and his plan. Uh, We can also look to Paul in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 5. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Do you know envy is a sin? Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So very concrete language. There are two levels of sin, and level one sin, which is breaking the rules, breaking the commands, or breaking the principles of God, very much matters. And so I would say then that there is repentance on two two levels. And the first level of of repentance, you could call it... um, you know, this is, this is like repentance for, for, for basically for lawbreakers. It's repentance that people need to hear who are sort of need, need to know the milk. They need the milk. They need to know the, the sort of basics of what it means to, to follow Jesus, right? So you can see where I'm going with this. Obviously, if there's a level one, then there's also a level two. And so if we look at the story of the fall and we look at Eve, then in the one sense, there is the sort of practical reality that God said, don't eat from the fruit, and she ate from the fruit. But if we allow ourselves to to think that maybe there's something happening beneath there that's even more significant than the fact that she ate the fruit, what might that be? What might this level two sin be? Or you could say, what is the sin beneath the sin? Yes. She disbelieved. Ken? Well, that, yeah, that's true, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's level three. I sin, we sin, we all sin, level three. 
What's the sin beneath the sin? Uh, over here, the gentleman said, not, not believing God. Yes, Iwe. Desiring to be God, okay. Selfishness, okay. So let me tell you what I think level two sin is about. It's the, the heart of really what sin is about. It's, it's where sin comes from. And it's fundamentally not trusting God. It's fundamentally not letting God be God. Right? In the story, Eve... God has laid out for her and for Adam a way to live, a, la- a way to have life, and he has blessed them with everything that they need to, to, to not only to survive, but to flourish. And Eve's sin there, it starts when the serpent says to her, did God really say to you that if you, would, that if you ate this tree, then you would die? And it's that doubt that creeps in and convinces us that there's something better for us out there rather than trusting in the loving kindness of God. So we could say that the sin beneath the sin is unbelief or not trusting, not believing God, not letting God be God. And it's interesting because Martin Luther has a great commentary on the Ten Commandments. And does anybody know what the first commandment is? Exactly. You should have no other gods besides me. And fundamentally, what Martin Luther would say is that the other nine commandments are all, in a way, a violation of the first commandment. In other words, all the other sin in our life, we could say all the level one sin is actually born out of level two sin. Level two sin, not letting God be God, not truly trusting him, not truly believing him, looking for our life, for our righteousness, for our well-being, in other things. Which means that level two sin, the sin beneath the sin, is about having other gods. Looking to other things to satisfy us, to give us life. Very interesting quote from Martin Luther. A god means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress, so that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe him from the whole heart. And so the commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. This is what he says it means. This is like God speaking. See to it that you let me alone be your God and never seek another. In other words, whatever you lack of good things, expect it of me. And look to me for it. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, creep and cling to me. I, yes, I, will give you enough and help you out of every need. Only let your heart cleave to, or only let not your heart cleave to or rest in any other. So we could say then that a God is something that we look to for our ultimate security or our ultimate purpose or our ultimate meaning. And I'm going to ask us just to think for a minute. What are some of the gods of New York City? Where are people looking for these things? For fulfillment, for ultimate meaning and purpose and significance in life. Where are people looking to for protection, for safety, for righteousness? Money is a huge one. Maybe not money, but maybe 
what money gives us, which would be what? Security. Security. What else does money give you? Money gives you possessions. What does money give you? Power, yes, power. What are the other gods? A God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in and all distress so that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe him from the whole heart. What are the gods of this city? Alcohol? I would say similar to money. I don't know if alcohol is a God, but what is alcohol? Could be, yeah. So it could be an escape. It could be pleasure. It could be the God. The God of success. Yes. It's a huge one, hugely powerful God. They're hard to see, right? Because we don't have like statues like they would in other places in the world. These are invisible gods, but very real gods. What else? Reputation. Do you know anybody like that? Everything is about their reputations, what they care about more than anything else. If their reputation is tarnished, they'd be devastated. If their reputation is... Um, stoked, then it makes them happy like nothing else. I think there's a lot of it that happens there, yeah, certainly. I think beauty is a huge God in New York City. If I can only be beautiful, if I can only look a certain way, then I'm okay. Then I'll be, then I'll be all right. So how can we know what our gods are? How can we figure out what are these functional gods? Not actual gods, but functional. In, term, in, in, in other words, they basically play the role of a god in our life. There's a couple. A, there's lots of different ways, but here's maybe two that just to get us thinking. Um, this is Tim Keller quoted this guy William Temple in an article um, as one way to know what your god is. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What is it that occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Do you develop potential scenarios about career advancement or material goods such as a dream home (laughs) or a relationship with a particular person? One or two dreams do not indicate idolatry. Ask rather, what do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? Just think about that for a minute. So that's one way that you can kind of tell. Here's another way, um, also from Tim Keller. A good way to discern this is how you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes If you ask for something that you don't get, you may become sad and disappointed. Then you go on. Hey, life's not over. Those are not your functional masters. But when you pray and work for something and you don't get it and you respond with explosive anger or deep despair, then you may have found your real God. Like Jonah, you become angry enough to die. What prayers have you prayed for with all your heart, and they haven't been answered. And it made you feel like you could die knowing that you might not get it 
or that God wasn't going to give it to you. So what is repentance then? So getting back to this question, is joyful repentance, remember? And level one repentance, turning away from, from doing wrong things. But level two sin is about finding your identity in anything other than God. It's about trust. And so what we can say then is that a sort of maybe a, a better or a fuller way to understand what repentance is about is about taking our trust. It's a turn of direction, right? It's about taking our trust away from these gods that we think will satisfy our needs. It's about taking it away from from those things. But repentance and faith go together, right? So if, on the one hand, repentance is a turning away from, then faith is about turning to something else. Um, If repentance is about letting go of something and dying to something, like the rich man dying to his money, um, if it's about letting go, then faith has to be about grasping a hold of something else. And so what I can say pretty concretely is that unless you have both of those, both repentance and faith, true transformation doesn't happen in your heart. It's not enough just to repent. Um, You need repentance and faith to go together. Um, Repentance without faith is not going to work because our hearts always need something to be holding on to. So if you're going to be letting go of something, if you want to avoid just going back to the same thing that you've been holding on to, you um, you have to grab a hold of something else. Interesting thing, also a Tim Keller quote, quoting from him a lot tonight, He says, idols cannot simply be removed. They must be replaced. If you only try to uproot them, they grow back. But they can be supplanted. By what? By God himself, of course. But by God, we do not mean a general belief in his existence. Most people have that, yet their souls are riddled with idols. What we need is a living encounter with God. And so... We can understand faith then. If repentance is letting go and turning away from something, faith is grabbing a hold of God. Not just his things that he gives us and his blessings, but grabbing a hold of him himself and allowing God to be the one that truly meets our needs and our desires for righteousness. The one who truly gives us a firm foundation for our identity that is not susceptible to the, to the waves and the ups and downs of life. We could say that faith is like an instrument or a tool by which we grab a hold of the promises of God, grab a hold of the many blessings that God wants to give us. Um, in the Bible, if you you know if you have a concordance or a Bible index and you look up by faith, you find a bunch of different verses that talk about what you can sort of receive and gain by faith. In Matthew 9.22, Jesus says to the man, your faith has healed you. So by faith, we can grab a hold of the healing of God. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made, and now, I'm sorry, and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. He purified their hearts by faith, Acts 15.9. A person is justified by faith. Justified means to be made right with God. It happens through faith. 
Therefore, the promises come by faith, Romans 4.16. The promises of, of God to be with us, the promises of God to be present with us, the promises of God to pour out his love on us and to um, give us the Holy Spirit, all of God's promises are ours through faith. Faith is the way that we lay a hold of the promises of God. We live by faith, 2 Corinthians 5.7. By faith, we eagerly wait, Galatians uh, 5.5. So in other words, faith is what gives us the strength and the energy to persevere. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, he says, your work produced by faith. So it is through faith that we are enabled and empowered to act and to do good and to, to love others. So when we repent, we're turning away from that which is not God. When we believe, we're turning towards that which is God, the true source of life and flourishing. So what is faith? Faith is believing in the absolute power, goodness, and love of God for you and then moving forward with that knowledge. It is knowing that your salvation has already been accomplished for you through what Jesus has done. It's knowing that even right now, that God is with you and that you are a son or a daughter of God through what Jesus has done. And it's knowing that your future, your life, your story is all a part of God's plan and that it's a good plan. He has good things in store for you. It is through repentance and faith that we enter into the life of the kingdom. I'll share you one story about how this played out in my life. When I first moved to New York, I was extremely anxious about being a pastor in the Big Apple. And so I immediately began to try to improve myself. I was a little bit overweight at the time. And before I moved to the city, um, I went on a diet. I saw a dietitian and lost about 30 pounds because I didn't want to be in the city and and be the, the, the weight that I was. I, I thought of the city as this place with extremely high standards and, ex- and very professional people, and I wanted to, to fit in. I wanted to be able to connect with New Yorkers. So I, was, I, I sort of went in with that mentality. Um, you know, I, was, I was, considered myself to be a, a pretty good pastor, a pretty good preacher, and you know, a lot of my identity was in speaking and in, in preaching. And in ministry. And I wanted very, very much to be successful as a church planner. So when we first started, Pastor Steve and myself, we um, had a group of about 10 people. And before we were meeting in a movie theater, we were meeting in the Children's Aid Society. But before we were meeting in the Children's Aid Society, we were meeting in Steve's apartment with about 10 people. And we used, we used to run these worship services. And so after a couple months, Steve had been doing the majority of the, of the teaching and the preaching. Uh, he he let me have a crack at it. And I had a lot, a lot of anxiety about speaking to this group, even though it was only 10 people. In fact, I had struggled with anxiety, with public speaking anxiety a lot, and um, uh, I, I still do a little bit, but I, I used to have like full-fledged, full-fledged panic attacks um, when I would get up to speak sometimes, and so it's something I struggled with. Um, but it was exacerbated by the fact that I was in New York City, and I felt this incredible pressure to be good. And I was very, very concerned what everybody thought about me. So we were sitting in a circle, and I, I gave the talk, and it didn't go so well. <clears throat> and uh, I, I, I had very mixed feelings about it, but I thought to myself that it was not that bad. Okay, the next week, so then I go in to meet with Steve, and Steve... You know, he asked me how I thought it went. I'm like, oh, I thought it was okay. 
And he shook his head. He's like, no. He's like, that was not okay. It wasn't that good. And, and uh, you're, uh, you need to not preach for a while because I think this is it's a bit of a situation. It's a bit of a problem. So, no lie, I, I broke down and started crying like a freaking baby. And I'm not a crier. I'm not a crier. I was absolutely devastated and mad. And I had wanted to impress him. I had wanted, been wanting to impress the group. I wanted so badly to be successful. And it was like the worst thing for me to hear, the hardest thing for me to hear. And he said, you know, we're going to take some time and you're going to need to work on some things. Maybe we'll work you in back later. And I was mad. I was like, well, what's the point of being a pastor if I don't get to preach? And it was all about doing that for me. All right. And... Of course, I was, I was anxious as well. And because I was already struggling with anxiety, that only, it only made it worse for me. Because now I knew that he didn't think I was good, and I, that probably the others didn't think I was good, and I didn't feel like I was good enough. So what was my God at that time? Reputation, career, success, I mean, all those things. And it was it sort of was making it impossible for me to do the very thing that I'd come to New York to do. And so in the preparation time leading up to the, it was a couple months later, he gave me another chance to sort of try it. And I, was, I, I went through a, a process of repentance and faith. And what I had to repent of was the very thing that was causing my anxiety in the first place, which was being so concerned about what people thought about me. And I had to die to that. I had to just let that go. Because when I would get up there and speak, it, that oftentimes is what would be causing me to get so tense and so scared was wanting so badly to impress people. So through that process of repenting and believing, and so I'm repenting of the one thing, what did I have to believe? What I had to believe was that my value and my purpose and my identity did not come from impressing others. I had to be able to, to, to believe in my heart that I was okay as I was, that God loved me as I was, and that I didn't need to impress anybody because he already loved and accepted me. And so I just focused on that. And no lie, when I had my next chance to speak, I didn't have any panics or anything like that. And as I was praying in preparation, I, I came to the point where I seriously felt like I don't give a crap what anybody thinks. I'm just up, getting up there to, to, to say what God has given me to say. And it went fine. It was much better. So I had to go through that process of dying to the one thing, letting go, and accepting, believing the truth. What is the truth? The truth is, doesn't matter how you did God loves you. God calls you. I'm, his, I, I'm God's son, and that's good enough. That's what it's about. And that's what helped me to overcome the anxiety. Thanks for listening to the City Grace Summer Breakout Session. Be sure to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit www.citygracenny.com 